We are moving through the book of Numbers, and uh, I love when I hear from some of you that you kind of try to get ahead a little bit in the reading, and at least one of you a couple weeks ago were like, where in the world are you going when you get to chapter 7? Yeah. <laughs> um, it is uh, difficult at first glance to move through some of these passages when you don't have an obvious storyline and there's lots of repetition, but I'm hoping that today you'll see the point and the focus of these important uh chapters, plural, that we'll cover uh, this morning, but I, I need your prayer and your support uh, through prayer, uh, but we all need the Lord to minister to us for this to be uh, worth our while. So let's, let's ask him together. Father, we ask that in the next few moments as we turn to your word, as we open Holy Scripture, that you would speak to us through it, that we would first ask Uh, what this says about you before we rush to uh, make it about ourselves. And so we open our hearts to you. We surrender to you, Father. We submit to your ministry right now through your Holy Spirit. Uh, Would you take these words and ingrain them, uh, push them into our minds and hearts so that we are changed by them, Father. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. Help me to get out of your way. I want to ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to think about uh, what the world really needs, and I'm not going to start getting into politics and all those kinds of things, but I mean just in general, as you think about uh, what keeps us uh, aching, groaning for something better, it might just be a cloud of grief or sorrow, uh, sadness, and uh, you've, you've tried counseling, and you've maybe tried medication, you've tried talking to people, you've tried to um, uh, motivate yourself, you've tried the self, self-help books, and you feel powerless to help yourself, and so it's a vicious circle uh, to engage in self-help in that way. But the real problem, isn't it, is distance from God. Because as uh, Nehemiah reminds us, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord. So if joy belongs with the Lord and I'm feeling like I don't have joy, the problem is distance from the Lord. This is why the Bible begins with the garden, everything is good. Oops, sin is introduced, ousted from the garden. It's not about the petals and the leaves and the flowers. It's about God's sacred presence. And our inability to be in His presence has separated us from God's presence. The real problem is separation. You might feel like your hopes have been dashed. You thought you were going to have this career. You thought your marriage was going to be like this. You imagined your kids would be a certain way. You imagined that you'd even have kids. And life looks a lot different than you were thinking and you've pinned your hopes on certain things and those are flimsy things. Well, Paul reminds us, doesn't he, in Romans 15 that we serve a God of hope so that when we're feeling hopeless, the problem really is not how our lives are going. The problem really is our distance from this God to whom hope belongs. And outside of this God, there is no joy. Outside of this God, there is no hope. You think of Psalm 23, verse 1, that famous passage. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, what happens when the Lord is not your shepherd? You shall want. 
constantly wanting, constantly aching, constantly groaning, constantly dissatisfied, unsatisfied with this huge gaping hole that nothing can fill. So the whole rest of that psalm doesn't make sense if the shepherd is not present with the sheep. It's all about presence with the shepherd. And the book of Numbers comes on the heels, doesn't it, of Exodus, where you've got these people, they were uh, promised through their father Abraham that they were going to have this awesome land and nations wouldn't be able to compete with them, and here they are, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, four centuries of making bricks for the Egyptians to have power, making bricks for the Egyptians to glorify their gods. 400 years of silence. There's not prophets walking around. And then God rescues them, brings them out, and in the middle of the wilderness, He sets up a tent. They call it the tabernacle. They call it the tent of meeting. And He's like, I'm with you now. And it's better to be with me in the wilderness than without me in a rich place like Egypt. Now some of you might be in here this morning and you love Egypt. You're good. Like, why, why would I head out into the wilderness? And I, I get my three squares. They feed me. I install the pull-up bar in my cell. I can, do, I can work out. I'm part of the pecking order within the penitentiary system. As soon as this guy gets shanked, I'm the lead now. And you love the system. And you don't want to get out. But this message is for those who got out, but you're not in the lane yet. And it's a frustrating experience and what God is communicating before rushing them into the land, because you're going to get all, you know, the milk and honey is going to be flowing. You're going to get up on your high horse when all the other nations can't compete with you and you're all powerful and you're going to forget. I'm the center. And the entire point of life is presence with God. Closing the gap, the hurts and the pains and the griefs and the disappointments you feel, that want and that lack at the end of the day, is distance from God, and God is working to close that distance. Let's look at it in Numbers chapter 7. Numbers chapter 7. A passage that, when you get to it in your Bible reading, if you actually read it word for word all the way through, and like pay attention, bravo. <laughs> bravo. It's repetitive, it's long, 89 verses, seeing the same thing over and over again. Let's set it up by reading verses 1 through 11 to see what's going on here. And right off the bat, you see in verse 1, this is about setting up the tabernacle. Now again, sometimes we use these religious words, and if you're not accustomed to them, you're not sure what they are. The tabernacle is the tent, literally a tent, where God would meet and be there, the cloud hovering over it, the the seat of God would be inside the tent, and this was the place where God sat and dwelled with His people, sort of reimagining the garden. That separation that happened is closing now. So God is with His people. Well, you didn't just throw up the tent in the middle of nowhere and just like, yeah, that's the tent where God lives, and then kids are playing and hanging on it, and people are going in there to, I don't know, we'll do whatever. No, it's sacred. There's something special about it. There's an inauguration happening of this awesome temple being put together, even though it's not made of gold and uh, large stones. It's a tent. 
check it out, verse 1. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils. You might think, well, why, why are there utensils in the tabernacle? Well, because the Levites would use it to handle the offerings and the grain offerings and there's food and there's cooking happening and there's a lot of things happening that are sacred rituals for which utensils were required. Verse 2, the chiefs of Israel, heads of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, approached, pause there a second, the chief represented everyone that was under him. So when the chief approached the tabernacle for the tribe, every person, man, woman, child, in the tribe is represented in that chief. That's going to be important. And then verse 3, and they, what did they do? They brought their offerings before the Lord, six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle. The point of this is the tabernacle, the dwelling of God with his people. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, accept these from them that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting. What's the tent of meeting? That's the tabernacle. Another way of saying it. And give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. Of course, the Levites uh, were the ones serving, uh, the, doing the tabernacle ministry, making sure everyone benefits from God's presence, making sure everyone uh, benefits from God's dwelling with them. So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites, two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service, and four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service. These are the three different uh, portions of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder and the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. So here's the big inauguration day. The temple is finally constructed. We've got it all set up. We've got the utensils we need. We've got the oxen. We've got the carts. We've got the wagons. And the chiefs offered their offerings before the altar where sacrifice would happen. And the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offerings one chief each day for the dedication of the altar. Now you remember we've got 12 tribes. Each tribe is not going to send every single person with a different sacrifice. They send the chief. And the chief will come one day at a time and for the, per, for the whole tribe present an offering to inaugurate this temple. In other words, a sacrifice, an offering that will commemorate the fact that God is dwelling with his people now. Then you enter into the cycle of what they offered. And what I want you to notice, if you look at 12 to 17, just for example, in terms of what they offered... Every tribe offered this. This is why it's so repetitive. Every tribe offered the same thing. They offered a silver plate that weighed 130 shekels. They offered a silver basin that weighed 70 shekels, right? And then they brought fine flour mixed with oil for the grain offering. They brought a golden dish that weighed 10 shekels, so that, that's pretty light. So many translations would say a spoon, and it's full of incense. One bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. What, are they starting a zoo? No, they're going to be killed. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Aminadab. And then the next tribe, and then the next tribe, and then the next tribe, over and over again, offering the same thing all the way through to the end of chapter 7. Now, why is it doing that? 
You might be like, oh, I get it. Why not just have one summary thing? All the tribes presented these things. Why? Why? We've got limited scripture, God. Why? Limited pages here. Why are you wasting? I could have used something else about how you got the animals into the ark or like, how are you a trinity? You know, give me something I could use instead of just rinse and repeat over and over again. Well, it's for emphasis. I mean, you think about it, when scripture was written, it's not like they could use italics, there were no colors, they didn't highlight it, they didn't put things in bold. They repeated, they emphasized through repeating things. And what they repeated was that every tribe offered the same thing. It doesn't matter how big your tribe was, it doesn't matter how small your tribe was. Now, one of the value that we get from the number, the head count that started off this whole book was that every tribe wasn't the same size. Every tribe didn't have the same amount of animals. Every tribe didn't have equal money. But in the presence of God, equal. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter how big your tribe is. What your spiritual pedigree is. We all come before God the same way. And God's presence is secured the same way for everybody. None of us in here is special in a way that, well, we we have an in with God. No, no, we don't. We all enjoy God's presence the same way. There's the same mechanism. The same thing has to happen no matter where you're from. No matter what you did yesterday, God's presence is available to you today. Well, that's good news. That's good news because if we came to God based on the merit of our tribes, I know any of you who've done any work figuring out your family tree. We come from messy histories and messy pasts. And you don't have to look past your own history, your own life, to get messy. And God recognizes the messes. And he recognizes the distance. He knows there's distance. But he makes a way for the gap to be closed. And it's the same way for everyone. And we need to emphasize how this bleeds into immediately into chapter 8, that God's desire here, again, like we talked about last time, is not to fold his arms and be like, how many rams you got? Let me see what you got. No, get out of here. No, he wants to bless, right? He wants to dwell with his people. He has no, he, there's no reason, no obligation. It is not necessary to his existence to dwell in the middle of the desert with these people. He does it because he wants to do it. He does it because he loves. He chooses, he elects, he dwells with his people. Look at the end, let's back it up to verse 89 of chapter 7. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. What spoke to him? The voice, the voice of the Lord. So the result of all these sacrifices, all these offerings, the result of it is God's presence. Not a quiet presence, not a silent presence, but a communicative presence where he talks and communicates and reveals what he wants. So the presence of the Lord is secured by sacrifice and the result of it is communion with man. And his purpose in it is to bless First few verses of chapter 8, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. 
and Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses, and this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold, from its base to its flowers, it was hammered work. According to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. Now those of you, uh, well, many of us maybe grew up in households where our parents had us run around doing random things, and they felt really random to us. Hopefully as we grow, we grow up, we look back and we're like, oh, those weren't random. I guess these things had to be done. It's kind of like... Uh, you know, when Mr. Miyagi is first training Daniel's son, and he's got him painting fences and waxing cars, and he's like, what does this have to do? And then later it's revealed, this means that. That means this, right? God is, is like that. He doesn't just, how about a lampstand? I don't know. I mean, you need to see your way when you're walking, you know. Well, the lampstand represents God's shining face that we just saw in that blessing at the end of chapter 6. So when you walk in, you see this light that's shining. I mean, where's, where's the nearest place we saw anything about light or shining? Well, the blessing. And so God's presence is a shining presence. It's a dwelling presence with his people for their benefit. His goal is not to kill them. His goal is to lead them, save them, bless them. But it takes something. He can't just plop down in the middle of them can't just say, light a lamp, and that's me shining on you. Well, the lamp is together with this place where there's an altar, and all of these animals, all of these offerings are offered so that the sacrifice is how they get God's face shining upon them. What it takes for God to dwell with you, what it takes for God's presence and shining face to melt away your anxieties and your fears and your dashed hopes, what it takes for God to recreate you as a person so that you're his sheep and you are fully satisfied in him and want for nothing else, what it takes is atonement. What it takes for that to happen is atonement. Atonement was central for the tabernacle. Atonement was central for their lives in this time. And we see that Right away, as you start pushing through, we're not going to read every verse, but he's purifying the Levites. We covered the role of the Levites a few sermons ago. And the Levites are being cleansed. The Levites are being sort of set aside in a way so that they can uh, work for the tabernacle so that the people can benefit from the presence of God. But in order for them to do that, they need to be atoned for in verse 12. A burnt offering is offered to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. And then if you drop your eyes down to verse 19, he says he's given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting. What's their service? To make atonement for the people of Israel so that plagues won't break out. In other words, uh, so that representations of your separation from me won't be present, but instead just my shining face of blessing upon you. Atonement secures that. So that Levites are atoned, so that they can do the work of atonement, so that Israel can have atonement before God. And then you'll see in verse 21, it's emphasized again, the Levites purify themselves from sin and wash their clothes, and Aaron offered them as a wave offering to the Lord, and Aaron made atonement for them 
to cleanse them. See, atonement, atonement, atonement. And it's such a difficult work, it's such a weighty work, that you even have a small paragraph on the retirement of Levites. Remember, there's an age requirement to become one, to serve as one, and then there's this sort of an age cap where you say, look, good effort, but at a certain point you're not able to carry the stuff the same way you could anymore, and so let, let, let the young guys do it. Why is this there? I think it's there because this is not a throwaway job. This is serious work, and you need people fully able, fully energetic to do the work, and that's in verse 23 to 26. Uh, now, I want, I want to give you a visual representation of how central the atonement is, and I hope that by the time we're done, you're going to see, even if right now you're like, okay, atonement, uh, I thought I was going to get something valuable today, right? I, I hope you walk out of here going, atonement, atonement, why am I missing this? I've heard the word before, and how come it's not central? It has to be central. It is central. Now, if you think about the etymology of the word atonement, the English word atonement, where that word came from, at one mint, right? Separation from God, what do you need to be at one with God? That's atonement. The work that it takes to bring you into unity with God is atonement. Now, I want to show you, uh, it's hard to see it when, you're, when your Bible has just jammed verses together, the structure of uh, chapter 8, verses 5 and following, and we'll put this up here for you to see it, and this is at the risk of maybe being too luxury or too nerdy, but I just want you to see that uh, even when we're bored in our quiet times, uh, Scripture is uh, written with intention, and there's structure. In this particular layout, you see that between verses 12 and 19, you've got this repeated theme of atonement. We've talked about this before in other sermons as a sandwich or bookends. Now, what are the bookends? The first A and the last A? What's it about? Atonement for the Levites, atonement for Israel. This entire sandwich is about atonement. How do you do atonement? Where does atonement happen? At the work, the work that happens in the tent of meeting. That's line B. And the next line B, to do the work of the tent of meeting. The Levites are given to God. The Levites are given to Aaron. What's the job of the Levites? To make atonement, to be atoned for, so that they can make atonement. And then in line D, see the two Ds? They're given instead of the firstborn. They're given instead of the firstborn. That's repeated. That's in verse 16. That's in verse 18. And the reason why that's repeated, I'll remind you really quickly. Let's leave that up here for a minute. I'll remind you really quickly that back in Exodus, when God uh, sent the plague to wipe out the firstborn of every family, that would apply to Egypt and, and all the Israelites as well, except for the Israelite families that sacrificed that animal, put the blood on the doorpost so that that death plague would pass over. And then God said, all those firstborn males, I saved them. I paid for them. They're mine. Now, being a very practical God, they get out into the wilderness. He's like, what's it like for families if he takes the firstborn out of every family? Okay, so I'm not going to do that. And you can keep your firstborn. I'll take the Levites. We covered that a few sermons ago. I'm just reminding you. He's like, you can have the firstborn, but I, need, I purchased this, this person that represents what I did in the Passover. So I'll take the Levites as my own tribe. They'll work the temple. They'll work the tent of meeting. They'll make sure atonement happens. And you guys can have your firstborn and we'll will enter into the land that way. So that's what he means when they're given instead of the firstborn, they're mine. 
And then what's the purpose of it? Right there, smack in the middle of the sandwich. Here's the meat of the entire thing. The Passover and Exodus. The Passover and Exodus. We'll just let that stay there for another couple minutes if you need it. But look in your Bibles just at verse 17. You might have a paragraph, and literally verse 17 is right there in the middle. It's in the middle of the sandwich. And it says, for all the firstborn, why is he focusing on the firstborn? For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of man and of beast. On that day I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I consecrated them for myself. He's reminding them of Passover, and he's saying this is the center. The reason I'm able to dwell with you without killing you, the reason I'm able to be life for you, and you don't have to suffer the pangs of uh, life without this source of joy and hope, and peace is because something else took the hit for you. That's what Passover is about. We should be separated from God. We do have messy pasts. We don't earn God's presence, but it's made to happen. How does that happen? And he wants to focus your attention on atonement, a kind of at-one-ment that is paid for by someone else so that you don't have to pay for it. And he's reminding them in this chapter, that's at the center, that's in the middle. Atonement is what this entire thing is about. And as we move through the rest of Numbers, he's trying to march them into the land. They're about to to fight. But before all that, you need to understand the purpose of this tent, the purpose of this tabernacle is for me to dwell with you, with my face shining upon you, and my face doesn't shine upon your life because of how good you were this week. My face doesn't shine upon your life because how much you've earned it. My face shines upon you because someone else took the hit for you. That hit of separation and death was taken on your behalf. We miss out on this very easily, don't we? Because as Christians today, we we don't have, listen, you don't hear any animals. That smell, right? It doesn't smell like a zoo in here. It would if we were then. Just animals everywhere. Did you see all the oxen, rams, lambs? There's grain offering everywhere, the clanging of utensils. I mean, it was noisy, it was loud, but there was visual representation of what this cost everywhere. And it was a bloody thing, wasn't it? It was messy and it was dirty. In other words, I know you're messy and dirty. Something else is going to take that for you so you can be clean, so you can be pure. And we miss that when we dress up for church and we sit in our comfortable chairs. Nothing wrong with it. We're not supposed to bring animals in here. Why? Because those things all were a picture of a greater sacrifice that was coming in the God-man himself, Jesus Christ, who came to tabernacle among us, bring God's presence in a permanent way, in a full way, in an eternal way, so that we don't have to walk around bringing animals into a sanctuary Instead of bringing animals into the sanctuary, we focus on the atonement that's secured to us, or secured for us through Christ. Through Christ. That needs to be the center. Right? Atonement needs to be the center of everything for you. This is why Jesus gets all hot and bothered when people are kind of doing church and he's not at the center. The reason why people were fasting and his disciples weren't fasting, they're like, how come your disciples aren't fasting? And Jesus is like, well, you fast because you long for the, the bridegroom. Guess what? I'm here. What are you fasting for? I'm here. 
He said, now there will be a time where the bridegroom is taken away and you'll fast again. And so a very real, in a very real way, we still do long for the presence of Jesus in a physical presence way. And we will get that. That's in the land. But throughout the wilderness, what is the reminder that we need that it's not better to be back in Egypt? It's not better to just be like, you know what, never mind. Let me just join culture. Let me just join the world. Let me just believe what they believe. And it's just easier. I can be more popular. I have a better career path. The reminder is that God's blessing isn't there. God's blessing, his face shining upon you, is secured through the atonement. And for the Christian, you'd rather be in the wilderness with God's presence than in Egypt without God's presence. And how does that happen? Atonement, atonement, atonement. Christ makes the way for us. Then in chapter 9, you don't have to ask, why is he emphasizing this? Why, are we in, why is chapter 9 here? He doesn't just want them to think back on the Passover when it happened in the past. He wants them to celebrate it. And so it says in chapter 9, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its statutes and all its rules, you shall keep it. So Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover. So what do they do? And they kept the Passover in the first month on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the people of Israel did. And so... We see here that Moses wants them to reenact the original Passover. To reenact the original Passover. Why? Because he wants them to slay the animal anew. He wants them to smell that weird smell of blood. I don't want to be gross, but I do kind of want to be gross. He wants them to viscerally visually, physically be around symbols that remind them atonement is at the center. Next week, we will have, uh, we'll be sharing in communion, and you'll be reminded in a fresh way that this broken pieces of bread and this cups these with red liquid in it, it's not snack time. We're reenacting something. Now, reenactment. You know, many traditions are like, oh, it's, it's actually his blood, and it's actually, no, reenactment. Where'd you get that from? The Bible. The Bible. <laughs> it's not unspiritual to be a reenactment. What's spiritual about the exercise is reminding our hearts and our minds that there is something at the center of all our benefits, of all our blessings, and the center of it is atonement made between us and God by the God-man himself, Jesus Christ, taking death where we deserve the death, defeating death by rising from the grave so he can bring us into life and move us toward the promised land, that heavenly city that we all look forward to. And so, (laughs) 
if we're going to see next week, he's getting them ready to be on the move. He's getting them ready for action. He's going to lead them with the cloud. He's going to lead them to conquer those nations. He's going to move them into the land. He's going to lead them. But he can't lead you if you miss the atonement. I don't care how long you've been coming to church, how many Bible scripture verses you may have memorized, who your grandmother was. If at the center of this whole thing is church, you've missed it. You've missed it. You think about James toward the end of his letter, uh, chapter 4, isn't it, where he tells us to draw near and God will draw near to us. We like to kind of take that slice out of the verse and like, yeah, draw near and God will draw near the verse is right next to it, repent, purify yourself, cleanse yourself, humble yourself, and God will exalt you. So what he means by draw near to God, how do we close this gap? What does it look like for this gap to be closed between us and God? It's not waltzing into the tabernacle like, yeah, yeah cool lampstand, yeah, I got this. You know, No, you don't got this, man. Right? You don't got this. Someone else got it for you. And as soon as we lose sight of that, we're missing it. And if we never did catch sight of that, we never got it in the first place. So maybe you walk in here week after week and you feel like you're trudging in from a land of darkness and despair and gloom and we're all going to experience that. What do we need? We need what God has always prescribed is a focus on the atonement. Let me ask you this. Do you ever commit to read through the Bible through a year? I'm not asking for a show of hands. I'm just, I don't know why I just put my hand up because I'm not asking for a show of hands. You can if you want to. I do. Uh, you read through the Bible, and you're like, okay, new year, I'm going to read through the Bible. And you're just sort of banging through Scripture. Right? You're just, you're, you're checking the box, which is, I mean, I literally do that. I finish a book, and I check it, and I, I choose which next book I want to go through. What I'm saying is, we don't want to just go through the exercise of reading through Scripture. You want to read through Scripture in a way that Scripture reminds you that the atonement is the center. Now, I'm not saying no other doctrines are important. I'm not saying every single verse is directly about the atonement. I'm saying it's all related. If we detach these things from the center hub of atonement in Christ, then they, they don't serve a purpose. They're random thoughts about religion and life and wisdom, but when they're connected to atonement, we see like, oh, this, this is the middle, this is the center, closing the gap between me and my Father. And everything else flows from that, everything else leads up to that. Think about how the Bible is laid out. All of the Old Testament leads up to the Gospels, where atonement happens, and then all of the New Testament books reflect on the Gospels. The middle of the Bible is not the Psalms, even though that's the middle of your book. But the center hub of the Bible is the Gospels. Why? Because of the atonement. Sometimes we read through the Gospels like, I wish we had more on his life like when he was young or little. I wish we had more details on this or that. Well, they're all trying to give you not a full biography of Jesus' life, but what led up to his sacrifice, his death, and resurrection. That is the point of the Gospels, not a biography of Jesus' life. And that's why they all point to it. That's why they, they culminate in it. And everything else flows from it. Is that what your time looks like, reading the Bible? Do you read the Bible? I mean, sh short of uh, reenactments at church, we need something to get us by day to day. 
what's that going to be? I hope it's not some talking head on YouTube that just pumps you up. You're awesome. I hope it's God's word. Remember, Moses going into the tent of meeting for what? For what? To see a song and dance? To hear God speak. To hear the voice of God. That's what atonement affords us. That's this. Don't just read it. Read it with the atonement at the center of it. That allows us to appreciate his words. It costs something for me to hear God speak. It leads to gratitude. How dare I nitpick about I don't have this in life, I don't have that in life. You have the cross. You have eternal life. You have his face shining upon you. Yeah, the wilderness is going to be hard, but would you trade that for Egypt? I hope not. I hope not. I remember getting into a discussion with a friend. We had recently both watched the movie, not at the same time, but we had each watched the same movie, and the movie was pretty hopeless. In the end, the bad guy wins, and there's movies like that, right? You're kind of shocked at the end, like, oh, <laughs> usually the, the guy in the white hat, you know, shoots all the guys in the black hats, and, you're, it, and it's over. You're, you're good. And sometimes in the middle, the, the guy's defeated a little bit. He goes through a defeat, and woe is me, and then he comes around again, and then in the end, he wins, and in this one, no. Bad guy wins. I remember talking with him about that and saying, yeah, I didn't really, I wasn't feeling that. You know, I don't watch a movie to walk away depressed. I, I, want, yeah, I want victory, I, you know. That's just, maybe that's just me. And I remember his response was, see, but I feel like that's fantasy. This is life. And so he enjoyed it because he's sick of the movies where the good guy wins. He's sick of the movies that leave you with hope. I know that sounds depressing, but think about it. He's not a Christian, and he looks around at life, and he's like, there's wars, and, and there's disease, and there's no good politicians. There's really no good people. My family disappointed me. Friends disappoint you. Things don't work out the way you want. So move, the movie-going experience is a fantasy. It's a fantasy when the good guy, yeah, you get knocked down, but the good guy always wins. The good guy doesn't always win. He's saying, and so one of the reasons he liked the movie was its realness. And what I'm saying is, the reason why I like the good guy to win in the end because it's a picture of the gospel. There is victory in the end. You see, for this friend of mine, all there is is wilderness. I'm not telling him, there's no wilderness. I'm not a prosperity preacher. All you have to do is this, and the land is introduced now. No, it is wilderness. And there's going to be days where you're thirsty and you don't know when the next drop of water is going to come or where it's going to come from. All you see is rocks. You're going to get sick of the routine of even the miracles that God gives you. The manna, we'll see that. God gives them this heavenly bread and it's tasty. and yeah, Sick of it! Yeah, the wilderness is hard. The difference between us is not that I think life is dandy and you think life is depressing. We both see life as depressing but you see only that. I have hope for a future. Why? Because atonement happens on the backs of a hero who doesn't stay down, and he does come out of the grave, and he does conquer death for us, and therefore I have hope, and you don't. See, Christians, without the atonement, we are just living in a fantasy. <laughs> without the atonement, there is, there is no reason to rejoice in any of the little things because they're detached from the big thing. 
But when you've got the big thing, atonement, at the middle, at the center, in the middle of the sandwich of your life, and your thought, and your heart, and it permeates everything else. Not meaning that when you leave these doors, everything's going to go great, but you can contextualize those things. Okay, I'm experiencing this. It stinks. It's hard. But in light of this bigger truth, I'm trusting God to lead me through it because at the end of it is life eternal. And this life is a wilderness journey to something else we're looking forward. It's not fantasy. It's our faith. Let's pray.